Hello, Words Matter listeners. To celebrate the relaunch of the show, we are offering membership in the DSR network for just $5 a month or a bargain at $50 per year. Membership gets you access to bonus content, ad-free listening, not just on Words Matter, but other great shows like Deep State Radio, which I'm also on from time to time, the DSR Daily Brief, Next in Foreign Policy, and more. To take advantage of this offer, all you have to do is go to the dsrnetwork.com backslash buy. That's the dsrnetwork.com backslash buy. Thank you and hope to see you on our member site. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. A lot of the dynamic here is uh, forces beyond Americans' control and beyond the president's control. And Dr. Kavita Patel. This should be a unicorn, Norm, a unicorn. Welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Kavita and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. Today, we're going to talk about a number of things, starting with the economy, moving to what could be a pretty dramatic move on the part of uh, Chuck Schumer, Joe Manchin, and Joe Biden that could alter the political dynamic and substance, including, of course, climate change. And then we'll have a final segment for our members about the Democrats and their strategy of targeting moderately placed Republicans and going to boost the more radical ones. So recent polling has made it clear the economy is going to be the number one issue heading into the election. Nothing particularly striking or different about that. But of course, we have big challenges. Yesterday, while announcing a pretty large 75 basis point increase in the Fed's main interest rate. Here's how the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, described what's happening in the economy. Recent indicators of spending and production have softened. Growth in consumer spending has slowed significantly, in part reflecting lower real disposable income and tighter financial conditions. Activity in the housing sector has weakened, in part reflecting higher mortgage rates. And after a strong increase in the first quarter, business fixed investment also looks to have declined in the second quarter. Despite these developments, the labor market has remained extremely tight, with the unemployment rate near a 50-year low, job vacancies near historical highs, and wage growth elevated. So, Kavita, we know we've got some issues out there. Some things are looking significantly better. Gas prices, uh, even driving around in D.C. this morning, I saw a couple of places where prices have dropped below that magic $4 mark. We know that other elements of the economy are going pretty well, but those interest rate increases and the continuing inflation, especially as we head towards the fall, are pretty worrisome. Yeah, not only are they pretty worrisome, but I'll give um, kind of to augment what Jerome Powell talked about. And and I, sadly, I had to get pretty smart on recessions, post-recession recovery 15, 16 years ago. And it feels like some of those lessons are coming back in. It's very interesting. So we have the Congressional Budget Office for listeners. They kind of traditionally do forecasting. They actually had a pre-pandemic forecast that had kind of trajectory for GDP growth, gross domestic product growth. 
and it's been off, obviously, the pandemic threw kind of a wrinkle into all of this, which is why Jerome Powell's comments really were predictable even from the beginning of the pandemic. But however, good news is that GDP growth had actually kind of picked up in terms of closing in on the CBO's pre-pandemic forecast, but then fell back and is about 2% below what the pre-pandemic forecast, or to put it another way, we are still just in terms of like what consumers are spending money on. We are not close to what we had been before the pandemic. So it's just another measure that kind of adds to Powell's comments. But then another interesting index that I think is helpful because it's, to your point, Norm, very relevant when you look at gas stations and you're going to the grocery store is prices. And the problem is actually looking at prices, the growth and the kind of GDP growth domestic product price index, and then kind of how that tracks compared to the GDP itself. And we still have a trajectory that is incredibly worrying where prices are increasing at an even faster rate with GDP not matching it. Or to put it another way, inflation is likely to get worse despite some of the shorter term measures that we saw that seem to be resulting in slightly lower prices. And if that doesn't confuse listeners, uh, I don't know what else can confuse you. It's taken me 15 years to try to unpack some of this. All of it gets back to a problem because if you play these numbers out to where we might be in, oh, let's say November of 2022, we could be in real deep shit, as people like to say. The third thing that I've been following is labor productivity. I tend to track this because labor productivity gives us, even though we talk about employment a lot and the employment figures get a ton of attention as they should, we have to also look at labor productivity because as we have higher numbers of jobs, we try to look and make sure that each of those jobs are kind of highly productive. And productivity is a pretty conservative measure for understanding like the value of our employment. And we're still seeing declines in productivity. Here's the big bottom line. Employment's going up. Productivity is going down. GDP is still below what we wanted for both a correction or for kind of pre-pandemic stability. And that disconnect, this disconnect, higher employment, lower productivity, lower GDP than we think, is literally something that economists say that they've never seen before. And so that's where I think if I had to give Congress a little bit of a, hey, you know what's coming. That's what we need to prepare the public for and what Democrats certainly need to brace the public for so that it doesn't look like the Democrats failed on the economy, but that they're taking proactive measures, acknowledging that like the economy is not going in the direction that we want it to. And that's very distinct and different from the president's press secretary's comments, which I thought were slightly obtuse and I think have obviously been criticized by both the left and the right around how like our economy is better than before, et cetera. It's a pretty disturbing set of trends. Uh, there are a couple of things that I would add. One is a lot of the dynamic here is uh, forces beyond Americans' control and beyond the president's control, and it's a global phenomenon we know. We know that a lot of it stems from the Russian invasion of Ukraine in two ways. It's caused a disruption in oil supplies which is partly why we've seen gas prices go up and down and up and down as we have not seen a stabilization across many months of the supply of oil. 
I would add parenthetically, however, that in general, oil companies, instead of trying to help consumers, have taken advantage of this to make wildly excessive profits compared to the past. Because when prices have gone up, they make sure gas prices go right up. And when they come down, there's a long lag before the prices come down. But that's a problem. And as we head towards the fall, if the war in Ukraine continues, it's entirely possible, if not likely, that Russia will cut off gas and oil supplies to Europe as it gets into the colder season. And whether the Europeans, our allies in NATO, maintain their resolve is a question that's going to have an impact on the nature of that war, but also more broadly on these disruptions and oil prices. The second part of it, which is possibly changing a little bit for the better, is that Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world. They supply grains all over the world. And the grains matter in the United States in part because if you don't have grain for feeding, then prices of meat go up and other things are affected as well. But now we have this deal. We'll see if it holds with Ukraine and Russia to open up the ports and let the grain out. Maybe that will bring some moderation in prices of food. The things that people are most concerned about because they see them every day or every week are, of course, the food prices when you go shopping and the gas prices when you go to the pump. Good news now, but if the things get worse in the fall, if that deal falls apart, if we see disruptions in oil supplies, the timing could be horrific. So what can you do? And I think you've raised a lot of the dilemmas here. You want, as growth becomes sluggish, to stimulate the economy to some degree, but stimulation of the economy means that you potentially worsen inflation. The rising interest rates are going to be another issue that will affect middle-class Americans. It's going to affect the housing market, although there, as interest rates rise, housing prices go down a little bit. That may make it easier for some people to buy houses, but at the same time, it's going to hurt those who are selling houses, and it's going to hurt the housing market more generally. So we've got a lot of big ifs out there. And whether the Fed handles this appropriately, it's not entirely clear. It's not entirely clear that anybody knows exactly what to do. I've been looking at a lot of forecasts from the conference board, from Goldman Sachs and others who have every interest in being as honest as they can. They don't want to spin this. And they're a little more bullish than I would have expected in the sense that they do not expect a recession coming soon. And recession is technically defined as two straight quarters with negative growth. But growth is going to be down and people are feeling pain. And if that doesn't change, it's going to have an impact on uh, the elections in November. And these really are critical elections. I usually call family members and Texas and other parts of the country so that I'm not accused of, of just using our kind of liberal coastal views to inform some of this. And, and it's interesting kind of feedback has been, there is obviously like some hiring, you can't go anywhere without seeing kind of help wanted signs and hiring. So it does feel like employers still want to hire or at least hold on to workers, but that the demand for some of these jobs and just in general is seems to be 
uh, compared to several quarters ago, declining. And that's obviously kind of adding to some of the dilemma that we will face in going back to like what could happen in November of 2022. But then it's also interesting. I don't know how much of a factor it is. People have made the comment to me that the labor market and just the way we're working norm has changed so much. I know it's certainly true for myself, for you. Where has COVID significantly shifted the way the labor market, whether we're less productive at home or whether just the fact that we're no longer kind of in traditional office spaces, does that change the dynamic of not just for middle class workers, but think of all the spillover effects. We're no longer having events and we don't have catered staff and we don't have this. We're substituting it for different types of things that we ask in the labor force. Could that have an effect? And then third, it's it's this perception, you know, there's a like a psychology to this. And even if things seem like they're improving, then you said the volatility of these prices, more predictability, even with just gas prices, that people still feel like something horrible. There's a sense of impending doom and what could be coming around the corner. And it's not COVID, it's not monkeypox, it's just hey, things are getting tough and we're likely going to see tougher times. Therefore, people spend less. And you see housing markets that used to be really robust start to suddenly plateau and, and decrease. And, and that psychology can drive, obviously, a lot of consumer behavior. And I certainly know that there are families who are, you know, they're foregoing vacations, they're changing behaviors, not because they don't necessarily have the cash on hand today. That's still a problem. But it's because they're trying to think about what could be happening six months from now. And it's 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 something that I think, again, it's, I like to say it's a Katie Porter solution. Like, how can we get Democrats who acknowledge this, embrace it, talk about it, teach about it in a way where constituents understand some of this is beyond, not just beyond U.S., but it's complicated and it's going to take very bold solutions, i.e., we will need to have a majority in Congress. We will need to have a White House that has their eye on this kind of economic policy. And that's not going to happen with the slate of candidates that are, you know, leading in some of these Senate races, congressional races, local races. So I think you've hit on a really Im important point here, and that is people are feeling bad. An administration that crows about its successes is being, in a sense, tone deaf. They've got every reason to be proud of a lot of the very big things that have been done. But that's not going to help people. And you have to show that you are aware of the pain that people are facing, that you're fighting for them, and that you're doing what you can to get out of this. And I don't think they've done a particularly good job of that, especially when it comes to gas prices, as we've talked about before. But it takes us a little bit towards our next segment, because people have felt badly, not just because of the pain in their pocketbooks and the uncertainty and the disruptions with COVID. And we have to hope, of course, that monkeypox, new strains don't create an even bigger problem in the fall. But it's also this sense that Washington is broken and isn't working. And that's contributed to Biden's decline in approval, the sense that he doesn't have control over what's going on. And it's possible that as we see some of these potentially big successes coming in the next couple of weeks. We've already had one with the CHIP Act, which is going to have, I think, a big impact. And that could also ameliorate some of the supply chain problems a little bit further down the road. But as we get uh, towards the potential, the very significant Inflation Reduction Act. 
I love anything with a great acronym. So let's just talk. Uh, I'll just mention what the CHIPS bill is since uh, that, that it's got a creative acronym that's incredibly helpful. Uh, creating helpful incentives to produce semiconductors bill. So it's about uh, almost $300 billion to speed up manufacturing of semiconductors in the U.S. And uh, if I had no idea how much of how much of my life is dependent on semiconductors. Everything. It's not just televisions and computers. It's even just being able to monitor the supply chain to make sure there's milk on the shelves. We were behind the times in the United States. We were at such a disadvantage because of our lack of this technology and supply chains. And that's why we've had so many of the shortages. I think it'll be incredibly helpful in getting products back on shelves, electronics back to consumers in a timely fashion. And then hopefully kind of like diminishing some of what had been driving up some of the prices that then feed the inflation. And then my favorite, uh, my favorite body, the Senate, where I came from, they just went through and I'm going to read some words from Senator Joe Manchin, who was part of a team with Chuck Schumer and celebrating what they call the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And let me just read a comment from Joe Manchin's statement as I was joking with you before we went live and with our producer, that I really hope Democrats figure out how to message because this is something that people can relate to. It's not as wonky and complicated as explaining the GDP to, to everyone else. Tax fairness, Joe Manchin, tax fairness is vital to our nation's economic future. It is wrong that some of America's largest companies pay nothing in taxes while freely enjoying the benefits of our nation's military security, infrastructure, and rule of law. It is common sense that a domestic corporate minimum tax of 15% be applied only to billion-dollar companies or larger, ensuring that America's largest businesses are no longer able to operate for free in our economy. And that's uh, just something that I thought was interesting that they highlighted. It's a message that resonates with all Americans. Yes, how can billion-dollar companies get away with paying less taxes than I do when I make uh, a minimum wage? And so I think it was smart of Manchin to hone in on this. And But there are so many things in that Reduction Act that were pay-fors. In addition to the taxes on billionaire companies, he also has the carried interest loophole, which actually allowed for investment managers to take compensation as capital gains, so less tax rather than income. There are so, so many tax pieces, but I think what I take personal pride in, started it over 20 years ago and kept fighting, was around um, prescription drug pricing reforms so that Medicare, not for all drugs, but Medicare can at least start to get into the business of drug price negotiation, particularly for the most expensive drugs, many of which treat some of the more common chronic conditions, including cancers. So there were a lot of um, the other part that was interesting for Words Matter listeners, Norm, was that Manchin actually also went out of his way in, in several comments to insist that uh, Biden's Build Back Better plan was dead and that this was the new way forward. I also think this was creative. You know, just when I want to like take a gut punch to Joe Manchin. He does something that I actually think was quite smart. Take on corporate people, you know, take on the billionaires that nobody can relate to. Make it very clear, this is not Build Back Better because nobody knows what that is and nobody actually cares that this is the new way forward, even though the White House deserves a lot of credit because many of these concepts were things that the White House helped to push for and also supported Senate Democrats for. So I think that, uh, and then on climate change, because there's been so many setbacks by the Supreme Court, by Manchin himself making comments about what he would not support, there were some decent climate change proposals in here. And uh, Brian Schatz, senator from Hawaii, Democrat, his quote, by far the measures in the Inflation 
Reduction Act would be by far, quote, the biggest climate action in human history. Nearly $370 billion in tax incentives, grants, and other investments in clean energy, clean transportation, energy storage, home electrification, climate smart agriculture, clean manufacturing makes this a real climate bill. The planet is on fire. This is enormous progress. Let's get it done. And obviously, Biden immediately endorsed all of this and talked about his pleasant conversation with Schumer and Manchin. So here we go. We've got gaps. We're we're closing gaps, saving families money that would have been kind of subject to paying out of pocket for Affordable Care Act subsidies, prescription drugs, who can't relate to that issue, climate change, and kicking the taxes to corporate beasts and people who have been using loopholes. This should be a unicorn norm, a unicorn to message, to talk about. It's still got to go through a parliamentary hurdle. Hopefully by the time people listen to this, we'll have gotten past it and this this can become law. I can't think of a better place to have from July to November to beat the band about how Democrats made a difference this, this year. This is really interesting. Mitch McConnell had uh, basically tried to kill this in the crib by threatening to keep the CHIPS Act from moving forward until he believed that this was dead. Joe Manchin, of course, had said just a week or so ago, it's all dead, it's not done. They got CHIPS through. This is an extremely complicated bill. It's 700 plus pages. They didn't just sit down yesterday and work this out. It sure seems as if they have really done a clever end run around Mitch McConnell to get to this point. And any end run around Mitch McConnell is something that I would applaud vigorously. At the same time, I've been critical in the past of Larry Summers, who's obviously a huge figure in the economic world, for publicly making it more difficult to get key Democratic priorities through, including saying just a couple of weeks ago, this is not the time for more government spending because of inflation. But yesterday and today, he said, this is a good bill that will actually help with inflation. And that made a big difference in getting Manchin on board. And I think it will make a big difference in making this work because They're devoting a sizable portion of the revenues that they would get from this package to reducing deficits and debt, even as they move forward with some ambitious spending. Uh, I want to, Norm, I want to say, though, McConnell did get some revenge. I don't don't think it'll work for him. It will backfire on him. He actually killed um, an important veterans bill that basically had almost unanimous support several months ago, last month even, the PACT Act. promised to address, address Comprehensive Toxics Act, I think. I think I could be getting the acronym wrong, but basically ensured benefits for veterans. Exposed, how could someone be against this? Veterans exposed to toxins from burn pits during their time of military service. Who thinks that's something controversial? Yet McConnell made sure, just as like a spite and like an act of revenge. That's classic McConnell, by the way. So yeah, they did an end run around McConnell, but somehow... McConnell made it very clear that, like, you can try to do an end run around me and I'll come back to screw you. Among those who voted to kill this was uh, Joni Ernst, a veteran. I've been following the Twitter dialogue on this from veterans, including comments that there are veterans who will die prematurely because instead of spending time with their families, they fought to get this bill through. 
This is the pro-life party again, and I use that term in quotes, basically to get some spite for all of this, having more people die as a consequence. It's, it's beyond despicable. On the carried interest provision, I use this as a poster child over and over. When Barack Obama just mused that this was unfair, that multi-billionaires were paying lower tax rates than working people, Steve Schwartzman, a multi-billionaire hedge fund guy, likened eliminating the carried interest loophole to Hitler invading Poland. And that tells you how out of touch, unbelievably selfish, and outrageous this billionaire class is. And I think uh, Democrats need to run against that a little bit more uh, vigorously, even if some of those billionaires support them. But this is a big, big plus in this bill. The second thing is with these climate provisions. And of course, Joe Manchin is the coal magnet. He is very protective of fossil fuels. But he has now brokered a deal that Al Gore is ecstatic about. And that means that we're getting historic climate change provisions. And if this act goes through, all of the bad things we've said about Joe Manchin, we're going to have to at least temper them because this is pathbreaking. It's not done yet. And we can't get ahead of ourselves as we have too often with these negotiations. But if it happens, it's uh, really quite remarkable. It is. It is. And that's a a good note to end on for our podcast this week. And hopefully we'll have even more good news coming out of uh, action after the parliamentarian and and other kind of Senate procedures make their way. And I look forward to hopefully repeating some of the good news that we can say is coming out of Congress. And just when it seems like there's despair, as well as reminding, valuable reminder, I, I think that packed I think that that PACT Act, having exactly what you said, Norm, reminding people that not only will lives be lost because of this hubris, but just showing those votes, Jody Ernst, I I completely agree. Like, And that has to be where we come out with midterms, making the message clear, like this is what the Republican Party stands for. So on that note, I want to thank everyone for joining us, for our listeners. It'd be incredibly helpful if you could rate and review and subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player. We hope you can also share th- this episode with your friends on social media. And if you like this and even and want to get even more out of our conversation, become a member of the DSR network and get a bonus segment where we follow up on last week's episode about Democrats engaging in Republican primaries and take it a step further as more of the outcome or spillover effects from Democrats investing in some of these Republican races has either arguably worked incredibly well or backfired on Democrats. But meanwhile, Words Matter, it's a production of the DSR Network. I want a great thanks to our incredible executive producer, Chris Cotnoir, and the producer of our show, Grant Haver. The next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on August the 5th. See you then.